This is Because I Said So, parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, John Roseman, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved. From American Family Radio, here's your host, John Roseman. Welcome to the show. It's called Because I Said So. I'm your host, John Roseman, and I still, for, you know, it's just kind of the time of year. I've got a lot of congestion. I hope it doesn't interfere with your enjoyment. Uh, hopefully you will enjoy. Hopefully my congestion does not interfere with your enjoyment of the show. I am a family psychologist who does not believe in psychology, author, syndicated columnist, public speaker, radio talk show host, husband of 49 years to the same woman, father to two 40-something adult children, and grandfather to seven, six boys and a girl. And I love doing the show. I pre-record it, by the way, because I am usually, when the show airs on Saturday afternoon at 6 o'clock Eastern, 5 o'clock Central on American family radio stations across the country, traveling or in place somewhere in America in order to be able to speak at a church on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon. And so I am not able, because of the timing of the show, which was determined by American Family Radio. And by the way, I, I just really appreciate the opportunity to do this. Uh, thanks to Tim Wildman and everybody over there at AFA, AFR, for extending this uh, marvelous opportunity to me. I have a great time doing it. And I hope that it's uh, not only enjoyable for my listening audience, but I hope that it's it, uh, it, it is enlightening to my, uh, to my audience. Uh, anyway, I'm usually in a church somewhere on Sundays, and I'm traveling to the church or the community, or I'm already there on Saturday afternoon. So we have to pre-record the show, which is why I don't do interviews on the show, and I don't take phone calls on the show. So... Uh, what am I going to talk about uh, today? Something It's got to be something uh, controversial because I'm coming to be known as a very controversial guy who welcomes controversy and sort of, I, you know, I've always, <laughs> I've always been this way. I just love to stir things up. I, re I really and truly do. Uh, so I'm going to talk today about something that has happened in America over the last 50 years. And that is, and I don't know exactly how to express this. I haven't written it out, so I'm not reading anything here, but the ubiquitous embracing of the idea that because you were not raised perfectly by perfect people, that you are entitled to some degree or another, to consider yourself a victim, and you are, by virtue of that entitlement, absolved of certain responsibilities. I am a member of the first generation of American children who, as we became adults, and especially if we became adults on college campuses, were encouraged to begin thinking of ourselves as victims, victims of bad parenting. And of course, you know, this is the Freudian myth. Uh, this is an offshoot of the Freudian myth 
that parenting produces the person. And so it was my generation that we were propagandized to the effect in the late 60s, early 70s, that we had not been raised properly, that all of our personal problems, issues, as they are now called, could be traced back to improper parenting, and uh, that we had some right to be angry at our parents. Uh, I mean, my parents had been raised by people who were no less faulted and sinful than they were when they were raising me, and yet my parents and people of that generation, the so-called greatest generation, did not believe that their personal faults were a result of them having been raised badly. And so when you believed that you were personally responsible for the problems in your life, you were motivated to solve them. And today, what I notice and have noticed for quite some time is that people just kind of wallow in this mythology and use it as an excuse to not solve their problems. So along those lines, I was recently standing in the lobby of an auditorium in which I had just spoken, and I was talking with a small group of attendees, and suddenly a woman who looked to be in her maybe late 30s took me aside and told me that her parents had been bad role models. My parents were bad role models, John, she said. And I said, well, be more specific. She said, well, one was verbally abusive and the other was distant and emotionally unavailable. All right, so uh, assuming that she is portraying things accurately, yeah, her parents were bad role models. And I said, well, what is the point of you telling me this? She said, well, I yell a lot at my children, and I'm often insensitive to their emotional needs. And then she said, how can I overcome that handicap, the handicap of having been raised by bad role models. And, okay, so I have been asked variations on this very question many, many times. The list of parental defects in question is short. It's generally one or more of the following, alcoholism, addiction, abuse, a string of failed marriages, a lack of affection, mental or emotional disorders, sociopathy, and abandonment. Like I said, it's it's uh, usually these people who say, well, I, I wasn't raised well. Uh, my parents were bad role models. They cite one or more of those problems. And so having a fair amount of personal experience with family dysfunction, in fact, my mother's second marriage was a disaster. It was an unmitigated, complete emotional disaster so I've got a, a good amount of personal experience with family dysfunction. Uh, my stepfather was a very unlikable person. He was mean to the point of being cruel at times, and he was very smart, so he was intellectually cruel. And my mother descended into what is called schizophrenia. Uh, she would come up for air occasionally, but she, she became somewhat of a wreck. Until he passed away, and then suddenly she went into remission and was fine from that point on. 
But anyway, as a result of my childhood experience, I have a lot of empathy, empathy for people who grew up under dysfunctional family circumstances. But childhood experiences of that sort are not reasons, in my estimation, they are not reasons for personal failings on your part, my part. Rather, they are excuses. In other words, such circumstances in and of themselves do not explain why any otherwise responsible, reasonably intelligent individual is struggling with parenting issues. The person is struggling because they, A, have convinced themselves that their childhood is a handicap, and B, believe in the Freudian myth of parenting determinism. Uh, Here's what I contend. If a person knows that his or her parents were a mess and his or her family was a mess, then the person also knows how not to be a similar mess. In other words, the negative can easily be transformed into a positive. My parents were bad role models as a form of self-enabling. It's a means of not accepting responsibility for your personal what, you know, drawbacks, failings, whatever. The problem is not the parents. The problem is the person's persistent use of their childhood to avoid personal responsibility. Said another way, the person describes their childhood as a handicap, therefore it is. The positive functional statement is, I know how to be a good parent precisely because my parents were bad parents. Are you following me here, folks? The difference between being handicapped or not being handicapped is a choice, a difference of point of view only. I have personally learned this. I know what I'm talking about here because my mother's second marriage, which occurred when I was seven years old, was a complete emotional disaster. The house was in a state of chaos, constantly emotional turmoil and chaos. But I have decided that I know how to be a good parent and a good person to large part because of that experience. All I've done is taken the negative and instead of using it as a crutch to justify my uh, personal issues, I have flipped it over and I've said, by gosh, if you look at this from the other direction, then I know how to be because of their example, their horrible example, I know how to be a good person and I know how to be a good parent. It was Freud, the uh, so-called modern uh, father of modern psychology who got all this going. He proposed that parenting produces the person, which amounts to a denial of free will. It also gives people permission to create soap operas out of their childhoods. And Freud was, of course, just plain wrong. Examples abound of people being raised badly who turned out well and vice versa. But the myth persists, which is why so many therapists make so much ado of their clients' childhoods. So if you put those two ideas together, people believe that their less than desirable childhoods explain why they are not the parents they want to be because they believe in parenting determinism. They believe you can't escape your childhood circumstances. Well, yes, you can. So, to the mother's question, how can I overcome the handicap of having two parents who are bad role models, I answer, you change your way of thinking. You begin by celebrating the wonderfully paradoxical examples your parents set for you. You celebrate 
the wonderfully paradoxical examples your parents set for you, and you move on. This is what I've done, folks. I have refused to allow bad role models to be a handicap. It's just a matter of perspective. It is a matter of choice. Stop wallowing. Move on. I'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. For those of you who may be just joining us, shame on you. No, (laughs) not really. Welcome to the show. And uh, for those of you who are just joining us for the first time, and hopefully not the last, it's called Because I Said So, and I'm your host, John Roseman. And partly I'm I'm in a good mood because uh, I just heard from a colleague that she had a phone conversation this morning, this morning being October the 31st. This show is for the edification of all pre-recorded because I'm usually on the road on the weekends and can't do this sort of thing. But she was having a conversation with a woman this morning who said that she listens to the show on a regular basis, agrees with everything I say, but thinks that at times I'm harsh. <laughs> well, you know, we, we've sort of, I, 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 I get it. I get it. You know, the, I, I'm just very straightforward. And the reason I'm very straightforward is because this is the fastest 30 minutes in my life. You know, Rush Limbaugh says that about his show, which is three hours in length. My show is 30 minutes in length, too. It's actually 26 minutes in length. I want to tell you, folks, I've got a lot to say and a relatively short time to say it. So, yeah, I come straight to the point. And, uh, you, you know, we've sort of dumbed down the collective understanding of the definition of the word harsh. It used to be that harsh was something that caused pain. You know, it was a harsh winter. It, um, it caused people pain and it caused people deprivation and great inconvenience. And that used to be the way, the context in which the word harsh would be used. But today, if I say anything that in a way that doesn't sound politically correct, and by that I mean in a way that does not account for the fact that so many people out there are so emotionally sensitive to the way things are said, not just what is said, that uh, it sounds harsh. So I I get it, you know. So I'm going to be off on one of my harsh rants. For those of you who have an allergy to harshness, you might want to turn off your radios at this point in time. I'll give you a second to do that. One there. Anyway, so I was uh, recently sent this article that apparently appeared online And it contains a lot of very interesting statistics concerning high school kids. Eighth grade, well, not all high school, because uh, the statistics include kids in the eighth grade, the 10th grade, and the 12th grade. So that would be, what, junior high school and high school, but teenagers all. And these are statistics that lead to the conclusion 
that child mental health in America is deteriorating and that the deterioration in question has been extremely marked or marked in the last six, seven, eight years, ever since 2010, 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. There has been, since that time, a marked decline in the mental health of teenagers and older children. And before I go into this, the the conclusion to be drawn from all of this is going to be fairly obvious. Because in the year 2007, the iPhone, the first smartphone, was released. And in the year 2011, these things began proliferating in the hands of teenagers, older children and teenagers. And uh, in the year 2011, cell phone ownership in America, generally speaking, including ownership by children and teens, eclipsed the 50% mark. It's probably around 90% today. And what is very interesting, but interesting is really not the accurate or most accurate word here. What it, What is interesting to the point of alarming is the sharp drop in statistics that reflect the mental health of older children and teenagers since the year 2011, when that 50% benchmark was passed. Since 2011, which uh, is, what, six years ago, and uh, uh, correlated with, temporally, the proliferation of smartphones in the hands of older children and teenagers, there has been a sharp drop among 8th, 10th, and 12th graders in the amount of time they spend socializing with friends. So what has happened here is that the smartphone has caused children to become more socially isolated, which is why one reason why I have said over and over and over again that Facebook, Twitter, they are not social media. They are anti-social media. They do not bring us together. They separate us. They make for relationships of the most superficial and fleeting sort. And this is commensurate with the statistic that since the year 2011, socializing with people your own age or thereabouts has dropped precipitously within the teenage population in America. They are hanging out with friends far less often than they used to. I mean far, far less often. And consistent with that, they report that they are dating far less often than they were before the year 2011 when the smartphone began to proliferate in their hands. The drop is just, uh, it's alarming. Uh, You see this line, this dating line, this percentage of kids who date on a regular basis, just kind of going from a flat line 
the flat line from 1976 to 2011, and then this sudden drop. Now, the thing to consider, folks, is that there was nothing else happening in the year 2011 that would explain this. So it is true that, and it is often said, that correlations do not prove causation. But when you can point to a number of correlational statistics that uh, have occurred right around a certain phenomenon, then you can pretty well bet that those statistics do, in fact, explain the phenomenon, and that's what's going on here. So we have kids who are socializing less, they are dating less, far less, and right around the year 2011, teenagers, older children and teenagers began reporting in sharply increasing numbers since that time that they feel lonely and isolated. So we have a drop, a precipitous drop in socialization, including socializing with members of the opposite sex. And we have a sharp rise in teenagers reporting that they feel lonely and isolated. Right. You know, they're, have you ever seen them? They stand around in groups and they're not talking. They're, there'll be a group of six teenagers standing around on a street corner or somewhere, and they will not be talking to one another. They will all be staring at their cell phones. Not cell phones, smartphones. I have no problem with cell phones. The old-fashioned, you know, phone that will only make a call and receive a call. I have no problem with those. Give give those kids, if you're anxious about your child's safety, fine and dandy, take care of yourself. And if taking care of yourself means you need to give a child a phone so that he or she can get in touch with you when the need arises, if they are not at home, then go ahead, go to Walmart and get one of those $18 phones and uh, put some minutes on it and uh, give it to your child when he leaves the house. And he won't like you for it, but so what? Who cares whether children like us or not? I mean, I I can't imagine, by the way, I mean, this is kind of a tangent, but I just cannot, you know, quite fathom the mindset of an adult who is concerned about whether a child likes him or her or not. I just can't fathom that that mindset. Along with all of this, since the year 2011, teenagers are reporting that they are getting less and less and less sleep. And guess what else is happening, ladies and gentlemen? There has been a sharp rise in the diagnosis of anxiety disorders among older children and teenagers since 2011, a sharp rise in the diagnosis of clinical depression in older children and teenagers, a sharp increase in the number of older children and teenagers who are taking very dangerous psychiatric drugs. So where am I going with this? I'm going to a harsh place. Knowing that many of you think that uh, there are times when I get harsh, you, you do want to turn off your radio right now because I'm going to say that common sense tells 
is is just screaming to parents in America, don't let children have smartphones that connect to the Internet. Again, cell phone that will only make and receive calls, make simple rudimentary texts, fine. Do not give a child a smartphone and who cares whether they like you or not. It's the end of the show, folks. I hope you'll join us next week. Same time, American Family Radio. God bless you all. Be well, be happy. God bless your families. 